Hi, I'm Margie Nomura, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. I hope you're all well and that you've had a lovely week. I hope everyone had an amazing bank holiday. We were so lucky with the weather here in the UK. And I'm so happy to tell you that this week's episode of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you in partnership with San Pellegrino and more specifically, their Young Chef competition. San Pellegrino is a brand that has long been associated with fine dining. And as part of this, they're on a mission to nurture the future of gastronomy, which is what this competition is all about. So the San Pellegrino Young Chef competition looks to recruit the world's most talented emerging young chefs to compete on a global stage. It's open to any chef under the age of 30 who's passionate about cooking and looking to reach the next level in their career. Maybe that's you, or it might be someone you know, one of your friends, or perhaps someone you work with. It's a global competition with 50 countries competing to find the best young chef in the world. Make it through to the semi-finals in London, and you'll get the chance to cook your signature dish for a panel of acclaimed chefs, one of whom we have as a guest on today's show. So I'm going to be finding out exactly what he's looking for and what sort of judge he's going to be. Make it through to the global final and you'll travel to Milan to cook for the panel of esteemed seven sages who've previously included Massimo Bottura, Joan Roker and Brett Graham. Entries are only open until April the 30th, but it's really easy to apply. Just go to www.sampellegrinoyoungchef.com forward slash en forward slash application and you just upload your CV, your signature dish along with some photos. You've got nothing to lose by entering, so why not have a go? And you never know, you might just get the career opportunity of a lifetime to cook for some of the world's most famous chefs. Now, without further ado, here is today's episode. My guest today is Adam Byatt. Adam is a chef, restaurateur, food writer, TV presenter, and mentor. He's been described as one of London's most exciting chef restaurateurs. He owned his first restaurant at the tender age of just 26 and now has three award-winning restaurants in London's Clapham, including a coveted Michelin star. When asked about his motto for life, he said it's got to be the harder you work, the luckier you get. Welcome, Adam. Well, thank you very much. What a lovely intro. So nice to have you on Desert Island Dishes. I just said in the introduction that you've been described as one of London's most exciting chef restaurateurs, but I thought maybe another apt description could be King of Clapham. I mean, you've got three restaurants here. What is it about the area that you love so much? Clapham is certainly my my uh, my home, my hotbed of restaurants. I have three restaurants here, Trinity, Upstairs and Bistro Union. All three restaurants are in different sectors of the market. Upstairs is super casual, music, atmosphere, sharing plates. Trinity is the sort of posh, fine dining uh, restaurant of mine. And Bistro Union is my little Trinity light, little neighborhood restaurant on Abbeville Road. Yeah, so it's so clever, isn't it? You're catering to sort of every different person. Yeah, three markets and in every one, different in mood. One area, yeah. So it might is, be the same person, but yeah, on different occasions. That's right. Definitely people cross pollinate across all three restaurants um, a lot. And that works really well for us, yeah. 
Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about your motto and the idea of making your own luck. Yeah. This is quite a full on opening question, but let's go with it. Yeah. So there's a really brilliant podcast called How I Built This. And there's a question that they ask everyone, which I now pose to you. How much of your success is down to sheer hard work and determination? And how much is down to timing and just being in the right place at the right time? You see, I think one folds into the other. That's the problem. I don't, I don't think it's as quite as clear cut as that. Um, there's absolutely no doubt about it. The, the harder you work, the more graft you put in, the more opportunities arise, the more great people you meet. And my father always said to me, you, know, the more, you will only be as good as the people you surround yourself by. So I tried to sort of make sure that I surrounded myself with great people as mentors as I was coming up through the ranks in my career. Um, but equally, I've put a lot of graft in and, I, and I've tried to put myself in positions which uh, give me opportunities. So yeah. not an easy question to no, answer. No, it's but, such a tricky um, one. But hard work, it always pays off, I think, for yeah. me. And you kind of have to have a combination of some sorts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Hard work wins out. Yeah. Okay, so I read that you were raised in a family of food lovers and that your mom was a professionally trained chef. So let's talk about the first desert island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Yeah, I was raised in a, in a, in a foodie sort of environment. My mom was a professional chef. She cooked at home. But we, listen, we still ate very simple food. It was at that era where all of a sudden convenience food hit the supermarket shelves and chicken Kievs and Finder's crispy pancakes, all that stuff sort of landed in the supermarket shelves that had never been there before. And my mum just embraced it with uh, gusto and um, I really went for it. So that, that was definitely in the, in the genre for us. It wasn't really posh food we grew up with. Um, but ironically, the dish, I'm, the dish that takes me back to my childhood the most um, and was quite a pinnacle thing for me. I went to France on a French exchange when I was young and I was 14. And we went to the Loire Valley and I was very young and never left the country, shipped off to, to this French exchange with this young boy in the Loire Valley. And we stayed in this beautiful country house and it was absolutely amazing. I remember the mum, all the doors open, the mum with a big wooden kitchen table. And the first thing they served me was artichokes, whole artichokes, where you, you know, as a family, you sit there and you peel off each leaf of the artichoke, dip it in this sort of sweet mustardy vinaigrette and eat the little bit of the choke off of the leaf and then you keep going until the prize is at the middle of the, the core of the choke and for me at the time it was like this is i've landed on a completely different planet i just couldn't um couldn't quite fathom it but it, it stuck with me forever and that love of france country kitchen cookery real food just um absolutely made its mark and and, and left a huge dent in me Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah, I did actually read about that lunch and you had the artichokes and then you had the rarest bavette steak and homemade goat's milk yogurt, which did sound right. absolutely amazing. That's right. So that really was the start of your it life. It was a real was thing. And, 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 and it, was, it just was a pinnacle moment where I realized that food, was, food could become a really big part of my life. Yeah. I'm a slightly disappointed you didn't pick the chicken kia. I'll forgive you. Um, so food and cooking obviously runs in your blood as your grandfather, Reginald, was, I believe, a chef in the British Army. Yeah, he was. Yep. World War II. How much do you know of what his life was like? Not a lot. It, he passed away when I was just 18 months old. But okay. um, I never really knew the man. But just his legacy lives on through the family, really. Yeah. Well, I like because yeah. I watched you on Great British yeah, yeah, Menu yeah. and that was all for yeah. the veterans. That's right. That's that right. Many years ago, really that nice was, thing. yeah. Uh, my nan was in that and she featured in that talking about my, my granddad. It was quite, 
quite strange really never really had those conversations at home but kind of weird that shows like that bring up those conversations yeah, yeah sometimes it takes something external to talk about that yeah kind of that's within right. a family that's right. doesn't it quite a big thing for my nan i think as well yeah yeah a huge yeah. thing there's so many different types of cooking aren't there and it's so hard to even imagine what the conditions and the food and the ingredients that people back then had to deal with but... yeah very true and cookery is one of those amazing careers that can transcend class and gender and and profession and you know you can cook in a hospital and be be the most wonderful cook you can cook at home you can cook in a mission star restaurant you cook in a hotel you know on a cruise ship you know it's such an amazing industry but not about the level you cook at it's about how much love you have for it and how much you really care about the cookery you're doing yeah that's so true there are just so many different ways to love cooking. yeah yeah so your cooking career started at the age of just 16 but tell me about the second desert island dish and that's the first dish that you learned to cook it did start at the age of 16. I left, I left school a little bit prematurely and um, I, w- I went straight into Claridge's Hotel, the most amazing f- five-star fine dining hotel in, in, in Mayfair. I uh, did my apprenticeship there. It was absolutely incredible. But, you know, you don't learn to cook at, at, a, re- at a hotel like that. You learn to work in discipline, work in a hierarchy, work with a lot of chefs. Um, you, le- you learn about the structure and the discipline, really. The first dish I ever taught myself to cook was uh, beef Wellington. <gasps> really? Oh my God. Uh, yeah, wow. I was very young. I was about 12 and I cooked it at home. I read, I had this book given to me. I followed the recipe. I went to the, the butchers and bought this fillet of beef, which was an incredibly big investment for, yeah. <laughs> for I don't know, for probably for me or my mum at the time. I don't know. Um, and I followed it to the letter and I cooked this beef Wellington and I, and I got a, a massive sense of achievement from it. It was huge. Yeah, it was uh, a great thing to do. That was the first thing I ever taught myself to cook. I mean, I think that's the most impressive answer we've had to that question. But I like it. Start as you mean to go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't think it was... Probably, <laughs> I'm not sure I'd be serving it today, but it was a, <laughs> it was a good start. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So you, as you say, three days before your 16th birthday, you won a prestigious apprentice chef placement at Claridge's. And you got it from the Savoy Educational Trust. And you obviously knew from a really young age what you wanted to do. But how did it come about that you won the apprenticeship? Because it happened quite quickly, didn't it? Your research is impeccable, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, it's sort of like that. But I started at Claridge's on a very basic apprenticeship, going to a very local college in Essex where I came from. And very soon after that, I, it, it turned out that I was turning up at this college one day a week with four or five sort of dinner lady type people learning their trade and there was me working in this five star hotel in, in Mayfair and we were all sort of share an avocado to make an avocado corn <laughs> salad and it all just felt and then I would, the next day I would be back at Claridge's peeling 25,000 pounds worth of truffles it all just felt very strange and a bit a bit juxtaposition so I just didn't bother going back to the college which got me in hot water as it should but then Claridge's then picked me up and decided to send me on an apprenticeship with the Academy of Culinary Arts, who select 12 to 15 chefs every year from all different hotels that have academicians in them. They selected me. Now, it does, it does sort of beg the question, did they select me or were they trying to just sort of get me out of the hotel for a bit? Because it was a bit of a pain. <laughs> no. But uh, they either saw a little, little glimmer of talent in me or they, or they just wanted to get me out of their sight. But they did select me and I did go off to Bournemouth to study and I studied for five years on my apprenticeship. So I did this sort of block release where you did six months in Bournemouth and then nine months back in Claridge's Hotel. Okay. And it was intense and it was a learning and it was a very amazing thing to do. But it was the first time that academia suddenly made sense to me and I could achieve something in a classroom, the first time ever. So it was a huge 
turning point, a pinnacle moment for me. Yeah. And you've obviously never been afraid of hard work. I read that before you got the apprenticeship, you already had two paper rounds, a milk round, a job at Primark, and you were a sponsored skateboarder. That's true. <laughs> All of that is true. Can you believe it? I should have stuck at it. I was earning more then. And that means I was earning so much money like that. All, 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 I was cleaning cars, doing everything. I was earning so much money. When I did my apprenticeship, I couldn't believe how little I was earning. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, I was doing, but I was doing all that rather than going to school. So it's not that clever. Though, mm. you know? Did you love life in the kitchen right from the start? I loved the hierarchy and the structure and all these really grown up, mature people. And it was like a new world that I could navigate myself through. Uh, I loved that part of it. I loved the structure. I loved the discipline of it. But, you know, and obviously food is all I'm doing all day long then when I'm 16. But actually food, it could have been anything. I don't think it was, I didn't, I wasn't in love with the food or the cookery or mm. that wasn't the appeal at that time. It was, it was the structure and the uniform and the discipline and the people and the environment and working in this really prestigious hotel. That was the exciting thing. The love of food and the love of cookery came later on but it was almost like i was brainwashed into it sort of thing it was uh, become such a part of you that you fall in love with the process yeah that's so interesting so yeah. i guess like looking for that structure i mean you could have ended up in the army or yeah I, yeah things. i do think that i think I, I would like to have gone into the police force but i was too mm. young and too small and too stupid and <laughs> um and, and not the right fit really but i know probably could have gone into the army or, or the forces or something but i definitely i sought sort out that structure in my life in 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 what i was doing and i think that was uh the kitchen was a perfect place to do that yeah i think that's true yeah. for lots of chefs isn't it, it yeah. it's the structure that it provides that's really appealing yeah. to lots of people yeah and even and it's slightly different nowadays it's slightly different but i never really was a massive team player oddly enough i was never sort of massive into team sports or being a team player but i liked the environment and the structure yeah okay and did you even from that early stage did you have your eyes on the prize of being the boss no, not not at that point. I had my eyes on on getting through today without getting <laughs> in trouble. Or <laughs> I mean, that's um, a good goal too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And being ready for service. Now that really came later when I first when I left Claridge's, I went to work at a restaurant called The Square, an amazing. It was a one mission star restaurant at the time, turned into a two mission star restaurant. But I think in the very early point of working at The Square like that, I very quickly realised that I wanted to own my own restaurant. Everybody in my family is kind of uh, self-employed, work for themselves, entrepreneurial. And I think that that was a, a big a big appeal for me. And um, as soon as I saw the square, I thought, hey, bingo, that's where I want to be. Yeah. Okay, let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish. And that's the best dish you've ever eaten. The best dish I've ever eaten. I have this great thing where I can't remember meals that were not very good. Oh, well, that's an amazing gift. It's, it's a lovely, <laughs> lovely gift, and I'm so grateful for it. It means that I can only really remember the restaurants that I went to that were absolutely fantastic and outstanding. My wife took me to a restaurant called Marco at, at Hyde Park Corner mm. when I was 21 for my 21st birthday. So very young. We saved up for ages to go there, and Marco was cooking. This is So this is uh, you know 20 plus years ago, and I ate the pig strutter dish, Pierre Kaufman, with the mashed potato, morels, sweetbreads. And I can still remember every single detail of that meal, what my wife ate, what we had for pudding, how it was. I can remember all the courses we ate, everything that happened, even the petit four and the canapes and everything. So I think that meal, and, and the fact that it stays with me like that is, is really important. So in a restaurant format, 
that that would be the greatest dish I've ever eaten cooked by that by, by Marco. But I've equally had some incredible meals cooked at home with family, simple, basic, the most simple meals really. And they have been some of the most precious meals. I think a great meal often is about the company and this and the place you're at and the people you're with and, and the style of cooking, and the weather, and you put everything together like that and it can just be the most magnificent meal, but it doesn't have to be the most fancy food. So yeah, that's um, so true. But it sounds like that yeah. 21st birthday meal kind of combined the yeah, two. Yeah, it was. It combined the two. Yeah, that yeah. sounds amazing. So after Claridge's, as you say, you moved with the head chef from Claridge's to the Barclay Hotel before joining the Square Restaurant in Mayfair. And whilst you were working there, it got awarded a second Michelin star and you were appointed to the position of sous chef. Obviously, a really important part of any chef's career is gaining all of that experience and learning from different people. Do you ever see sort of young, ambitious chefs coming to you? Maybe they want to open their own place and they're sort of trying to miss out that step. Yeah, it's a difficult one. I I missed out steps that I wish I hadn't of before I opened my own restaurant. And, And I do have a very close knit bunch of people that have worked for me over the years i've been doing this for 19 years so a lot of people have worked for me for short stints and longer stints i'm still very close to a lot of them they still come to me for advice and careers advice and the most the most you know recent most obviously asked question is is i want to open my own restaurant how do i get started you know and i just think to a lot of people i just think be careful what you wish for you know it's not (laughs) it's not not as pretty as it looks not as glamorous as it seems um and an awful lot of the restaurants you see out there are, are just a, a huge money pit that are not mm. making any money. And it's not, it's not as easy as it looks. I do understand why they want it, but I often will tell them just to keep going and keep pushing because it's a marathon. You know, the, the whole, your career is a marathon. If you're 26, 27, you don't really want to reach the finishing line at that point. You've still got another 40 years to do and yeah. you need to take your time and yeah, learn yeah. as much as you can. Get that the more skill you have, the more craft you have, the more knowledge you have, the more power you have, and the more more success you're more likely to be. So you were just 26 when you opened your first restaurant, Time, which became an instant success. You won awards, including Time Out Restaurant of the Year, Best Newcomer, Restaurant Awards, and various others. 26 is so young to open a restaurant. Did it feel young at the time, or did you just feel really ready? Yeah, it, it? No, it felt very young. And, and it kind of contradicts what I've been saying to the to all these guys that come to me but i still stick to it that i shouldn't have opened that restaurant then even though it was a success and it's taken me to where i go i don't have any regrets over it but that restaurant could have been so much more successful had i know what i know half of what i know now that restaurant would have been incredibly successful and i mean it was it was successful on paper and as a stepping stone and as a stage for me to be become known as a as a cook in london but in terms of financial and structure, it was, you know, we could have done something really exciting with that brand and that restaurant, but just youth and, and the, the mist of youth was in the way, that's all. Yeah, but, but I mean, that's the thing about starting a restaurant is... Yeah. But it was rock and roll, I'd never change it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's very cool. And you dabbled in other realms of entrepreneurship as you opened a small chain of juice bars before eventually returning to the kitchen and opening time. So I guess you're opening your own restaurant combined your passion for cooking, but also wanting to be a business owner. Yeah, I, I did the juice bar thing with Philip Howell from The Square. And it was an incredible thing. You think that's 20 years ago, 22 years ago? Yeah, it was very ahead of its time. Very ahead of its time. If you did that now, it would be... Um, you know, it'd be amazingly successful, I think, now, if we did it in a plant-based way. and did you all have the delivering on the menu? And, 
Uh, we did have kale, yeah. I think. Yeah, we had green juices, and we had it was an amazing concept to do, especially coming out of fine dining. But ultimately, mixing fine dining with the grab and go concept is not an easy combination. And working with sort of lower cost base ingredients and and working with much higher volumes, much lower margins is a very different model to that of a fine dining restaurant. The two are not apples for apples. And it was a great, great thing to do. I learned so much about business. It was the bit I needed, the the little piece I needed in the jigsaw to be able to get me on my way with the new, with the restaurant. So it was a very important part of my life and I loved it. But um, ultimately it's a shame it wasn't successful. Yeah. What do you think about non-chefs opening restaurants? Because I feel like lots of people come from law and banking mm. and they sort of, as you were saying, they sort of see this idealistic image of what it's like to run a restaurant. But do you think it's sort of essential to have that food training? Well, I think, I think it's hilarious. You see, that, you know, often I think these people go, they eat out four or five times a week, <laughs> look at their credit card at the end of the month and think, oh, gee, I spent 2,000 quid last month eating it. It must be, it must be so lucrative. But actually, as you've just said, if there is no passion for food, you might as well give up and go home because yeah. there, there is going to be a lot of dark days. There are days where you just won't make any money. There are times when the staff just won't turn up and all sorts of weird and wonderful, crazy stuff will happen. But it's the passion for food that will keep you sane and through it, ultimately. Yeah. And, um, and, and this industry is it's a lifestyle. It's not, it's not something you can do as a job. You can't just go home and turn your phone off. You know, it's not, it just doesn't work like that. And um restaurants are not as lucrative as people think they are unless they are those one-off sort of amazing restaurants that, that don't come around very often yeah um, but then, i always you know, just think if you're coming from banking or law and you want to start a business there are easier businesses yeah completely start. i completely agree <laughs> yeah, yeah i completely agree let's pause there and talk about quite possibly the most important question of the day what is your favorite sandwich Oh, favorite sandwich. I don't eat sandwiches that often, if I'm honest. Really? No, I'm not, not mad on, no, not mad. But we won't judge you for that, Adam. But if I was to have a sandwich, it would always, probably always be a prawn cocktail sandwich, prawn mayonnaise sandwich. That is an excellent, well, is it prawn mayo or is it prawn it's cocktail? It's probably prawn mayo. Prawn <laughs> that mayo. is an excellent choice. <laughs> prawn mayo sandwich. Yeah, I do like a prawn mayo sandwich. Big fan of a prawn cocktail. And so anywhere, anything remotely near that is fine. And I'm not mad on, beef and chicken and stuff in sandwiches but um i like tuna sandwiches i like prawn sandwiches <laughs> i think those are both excellent <laughs> options let's talk a little bit about food waste because i know it's something that you're really passionate about and you're working towards mm. a zero waste restaurant we are spending a lot of energy much to our own cost to try to be as responsible as we possibly can and i think that i think that comes with the higher up the up the food chain you get you become a, a mission star restaurant there are a certain set of responsibilities that come with that. One is the mentoring of young team members, which we might talk about. And the other is running that business as responsible as we can. We have this program where 100% of our food waste goes into a, a bin, gets collected daily, which is like 300 kilos. Of, is that with your food waste farmer? That's right. It gets collected daily, goes off, gets made into compost, shipped to a farm, and then all of our vegetables get grown on that compost and then get delivered back to us. So it's like a full circle thing. Yeah. But we also don't have any deliveries that come into building in polystyrene. Everything hum- comes in returnable crates, vegetables, fish, meat, everything. We don't have anything vacuum packed. You know, we recycle all our oil. We Loads of stuff we do, which is really interesting. Is it more work 
to create yeah. those systems. Yeah, it's more work and it's more cost. Yeah. But what it does, it sets a culture through the business for the team of responsibility, not only environmental, but like respect for the, the product and respect for the environment, the, the equipment, the team, and the respect for our principles as a business. And yeah. I think, I think that's really important. Yeah. So um, we're not, you know, we're not saints. We're not, we still do cook with, you know, but we are cooking with, you know, super high premium products. And I think that's, um, that's also one side of it as well. Yeah. Well, but it, it, it's an epidemic. It, it's a third of all food produced in the UK currently goes to waste, which is terrible. You know, I think probably one of the most responsible things that we do that doesn't get recognized is that we cook hyper seasonally. So yeah. if something is not in season, we just don't cook with it. And that, that's one of the most responsible things that we can do as consumers, actually. Yeah. yeah, and such a simple mm, principle. Simple yeah. principle, yeah. Let's talk about the fifth desert island dish, and that's the dish you eat the most often. The dish I eat the most often. We have a dish upstairs, which is uh, like barbecued purple sprouting broccoli with a little sort of what's called bagna calda. Bagna calda means warm bath in Italian, but it's, mm. a, it's a lovely anchovy milk garlic dressing. It's, for, it's a very light dressing. Now, as I've reached an age where if I just sit there eating <laughs> chips and white bread all day long, I would look like a house. <laughs> I have to, unfortunately, run and I have to eat healthily. And I have to, if I want to continue to eat lots of the nice things I like in life and drink all the lovely wine I like in life, I have to treat my body a little bit better. So I often eat that broccoli dish you know, three or four times a week as my lunch uh, or as my dinner. I'm going to say that um, doesn't sound too much of a hardship. No, it's not a hardship. <laughs> no, it's great, but it is nice and healthy and, and it, it's well, enough to keep me going. So you so. make a dressing using yeah, milk? Yeah, this beautiful dressing where you, you place milk into a pan, you yeah. add raw garlic, cloves, you add anchovies, we use Ortis anchovies, and then you reduce the whole lot down until it becomes a sort of sticky sort of mess put it into a blender and then mount a little bit of olive oil into it and um, some lemon juice and stuff and, uh, and another fresh anchovy. And that becomes your nice, loose, anchovy, garlicky, milky dressing. That sounds And then we just coat uh, broccoli that we pre-blanched and then run over the barbecue on the wood. So, yeah, it's a very simple dish, but it's been on the menu for about five years and people love it and they eat it all the time. It's a very female-friendly dish as yeah. well. So, <laughs> yeah, but I eat it a lot. That's the one dish I eat a lot. And I eat a lot of couscous as well. Not not entirely through choice. I wish every day I could have a nice entrecot steak and chips and yeah, Bernay sauce, but unfortunately, that is th- <laughs> those days have, have uh, sadly passed me. You and me both, Adam. Yeah. So you're a judge for the upcoming San Pellegrino Young Chef competition, which is really exciting. You've done lots of mentoring, charity work, and things along those lines before. But have you been a judge in a competition before? Yes, I have actually. I um, this is really exciting times. I have to say the the San Pellegrino. Young Chef competition is a is a one off. It's not something that that stands next to all the other amazing competitions. It's, this is this is on an international level, so it's a wholly different thing. What kind of judge are you? Are you a Simon Cowell or are you a Mary Berry? I'm much more of a mentoring judge. I think okay. I find it. You know, you I I look at these young guys and I think actually, you know what, you've given all that time and effort and energy to come into this and put yourself up against it and, and put yourself out of your comfort zone and, and um, try your hardest to be recognized. I'm, I'm very sympathetic of that. I'm not sympathetic of people trying to cut corners and trying to sort of uh, fudge their way through it. Ultimately, you've either got the skill to do it or you haven't. Um, so I think I would like to say I'm firm but fair. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a Mary Berry. Um, so the first part of the competition is that the young chefs will cook their signature dishes for you and a panel of other brilliant chefs. What would your signature dish be if you were entering the competition? 
Oh, good question. We've done a dish here. We do this. Well, actually, I'm going to end up talking about pig's trotters again. I'm like, I'm obsessed <laughs> with pig's trotters, which is crazy. But we do this dish, which is pig's trotters braised with smoked ham hock and stuff. All gets braised for hours and hours and hours, picked down very finely, diced, mixed back through its cooking liquor, set, and then breadcrumbed and deep fried. And we serve it with this sort of um, quite acidic dressing of capers and cornichons, a piece of crackling and a fried quail egg. So it's almost got that sort of um, full English breakfast egg, pork, acid and stuff. But it's been on the menu for nine years at Trinity. Crispy pig strutters with crackling and crispy fried quail egg. Been on the menu for nine years and a few few chefs have come to the restaurant before and said to me, never take that off the menu. So that's a, that that dish is now hanging around my, my neck for, for life, I think. I mean, um, I feel like you'd win the competition. It's a good, it's a good dish. <laughs> it's no doubt about it. It's a good dish. But when you've cooked about 10,000 of them, it becomes a little bit... Um, yeah. It's consistent, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you must have seen a lot of young chefs in your kitchen as well. What do you want to see in a young chef? Because the idea of the competition is to nurture the future of gastronomy. But what do you want the future of gastronomy to be? The industry's changed. The, the people's perception of the industry has changed. Uh, people coming into the industry come in with a different viewpoint. We see lots of young chefs. Um, we get probably two or three applications a week of people to come and work at Trinity. And I can normally tell from the approach, the CV, the subletter, just what I'm going to get. But we often get these people in, they trial with us for a day, and they, they think that immediately I'm looking for how fine they can cut a shallot or how well they can, you know, sort of mix with the team or how well they can pick the salad leaves or how well, how cleanly they work. Of course, I'm looking at those things, but actually 90% of it is attitude, a hunger for interest and, and, and food and a desire to understand what's going on around them and be passionate and, and a team player. These things are much more important to me. So it's really about attitude and, and approach, but also having the, having a basic skill that you've clearly progressed on your own from college through to where you are now. So when you're at college, you're taught to dice onions and dice celery and all these sort of things. You've been in the industry a year. You've been doing that for a year. Have, uh, have you progressed those knife skills and that ability beyond college? Or are you still working at that level? And that's what we look at, really. I mean, it's the most amazing opportunity. Imagine winning and being crowned the best young chef in the whole world. The world would literally be know, your oyster. I know. What an amazing, what an amazing opportunity. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, as young chefs, you, it, there are so many young chefs now in London and, and across the world that are so talented. But to be able to get yourself out there above the parapet and be noticed is one of the most difficult things to do. Yeah. If you're going to progress in this career and you're going to go on and be incredibly successful, you've got to get noticed at a young age. And, um, and I, I, I managed to do that through by hook or by crook. And that this is a much more formidable way of doing that. So yeah. a brilliant opportunity for someone. There are 50 countries competing in the competition and the food scene in the UK has changed so much over the years. But what do you think a chef from the UK can bring as a competitive advantage over chefs from other parts of the world? Well, the fact that they work near, in or around London or in the UK, but London is the, is the hotbed for restaurants and, and culinary gastronomy in the, in the world right now. So they have the, the, added ability to be able to draw from such an incredible pool of restaurants and chefs that are available in the UK at the moment 
Um, there's absolutely no excuse. And that coupled with the fact that we have some of the best ingredients on the planet. Yeah. There should be really no excuse. You know, there is, um, this is a, a brilliant opportunity. Isn't it so funny that only a few years ago, like the rest of the world kind of laughed at us mm. in terms of what we produce. Yeah, but, it, but, it's a, but it's happened in a different way. It's because we don't really have a huge amount of food heritage or gastronomic mm. heritage that we, you can now buy the best. You can now eat the best Japanese food, the best Indian food, the best Thai food, the best Korean food, the best British food, best French food in London. Yeah. Because we've had to adopt everybody else's these brilliant chefs coming in. We have the, the financial market to cope with it. So we've adopted all these brilliant people. We've all leveraged from it. And now this melting pot has happened. It's just, um, it's an incredibly exciting time for London and food. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting way of thinking about it. I guess it's quite a unique way that it did happen. Mm. But yes, yeah, turned out so well. Mm. Okay. Let's talk about the sixth desert island dish. And that's your go-to dinner party dish. Uh, I like dinner parties to be really simple. I okay. do cook dinner parties at home. Uh, I don't get invited to many, but I do, <laughs> I do cook them at home. Like I like people are intimidated. Well, no, I don't know. Maybe I'm just not that sociable. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But if I could, I, the last dinner party I cooked at home, uh, I like to cook really beautiful ingredients, drink really great wine, because I'm spending it with people that I really want to spend time with. Yeah. The last time we did it, I cooked uh, this huge bowl of live langoustines straight as everybody sat down. We've made some lovely little parmesan and anchovy puffs and then we drank some nice wine and then we sat down and we cooked these langoustines and we all just sat around there were 12 of us all just sat around breaking opening eating these langoustines dipped in mayonnaise and then i cooked a whole turbot in um oxidized white burgundy with uh, a little sort of nice salad cooked it whole the whole fish whole put it in the middle of the table everyone shared it so that sort of theory of sharing i like at home and then i cooked um this rump cap of beef just with truffled uh, shallots and green beans and stuff, which was really delicious. Again, sliced it at the table, put it in the middle of the table, everyone helped themselves. So no real, no carbohydrate, no, no starchy, big stuff, just really lovely sharing, brilliant produce. And then um, my wife always makes a lovely tart or, or a chocolate tart and I made a creme caramel because I wanted to show my daughter how to do it. That was the last dinner party I did. And cheese, we always finish with Comte. That sounds delicious. I know, right? And I, I think know. we've come to the root of why you don't get asked at other people's houses. I can't do it too often. They want to come to yours. <laughs> I say to my wife, the problem is they come, if I do that too often at home, they won't, they won't eat in the restaurant. Yeah. They're, they're getting a like, free, Adam, free restaurant free? experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. I don't have that many friends. So. <laughs> um, on Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner where we ask the guests to tell us about their most treasured cookbook. Yeah. What would yours be? I have, lo- well, there's two. One is a Repertoire de la Cuisine, which is a, which is a very, very old book my mum gave me her copy it's that book you get when you start a college it's the sort of the bible of old recipes from escoffier and my mum gave me her copy from 1968 which is really treasured by me but the book i refer to a lot is Dorina allen's <gasps> forgotten skills i love that book i just think it's um it's a fantastic book and to just remind you of all of why we cook, you know, making cheese, making butter, utilizing the animals properly. And I just think it's got such a lovely, it's a book you can read all day long. Yeah. And she's such a hero. Yeah. She's a huge food hero. Yeah. And I, I like the Chez Panisse book as well, um, which I think is amazing. So Yeah. But three very good choices there. Thank you. Well, we're on to the final seventh desert island dish. That's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Uh, I think it would be shellfish 
because I think it's got, you know, you, when you buy shellfish, you're getting pound for pound some of the most delicious food you can probably eat, be it crab or langoustines or oysters or mussels or lobster. I think all those things are just absolutely at the pinnacle. And, and I would happily eat a huge plate of all those things with a simple dressing salad and mayonnaise. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Would you have a pudding? I have a sweet tooth. But I much prefer savoury, so I probably would just overindulge on the on the oysters and, and langoustines. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> well, you're very welcome. Adam, thank you so much. Those My are your pleasure. desert island dishes. Thank you. Nice to meet you. So there we have it. Another delicious day of desert island dishes. Don't forget, you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And it really does make such a difference. I know everyone always bangs on about it, but it boosts the show in the charts and it helps others to find out about the podcast, which is great because it means I can keep bringing it to you each week. If you don't already, do come and follow me on Instagram at Margie Namora, and you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at desertislanddishes.co. And I think that's all for now. So thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week. Bye.